This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. Wow, I just realized that the first day of spring is only three and a half weeks away. Spring will be here sooner than you think, and I have to say, quite frankly, it's about time. After spending most of the winter sitting in front of a full-spectrum light bulb and eating chocolates, trying to fight off a case of seasonal affective disorder, I will be more than happy to get outside and stand in the real sun. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Lori Goodrich from Hawk Mountain Sanctuary in Pennsylvania. Dr. Goodrich has been conducting field research into the biology and behavior of the broadwing hawk for the last several years in order to discover what factors have been diminishing their numbers. Once plentiful in the eastern United States, The Broadwing is now showing signs of struggling, and Dr. Goodrich is hopeful her research will result in the conservation and protection of feeding and nesting areas for the Broadwing along its migratory route. We, of course, will be playing a role in this year's research, as we are sponsoring the satellite tracking of a selected Broadwing. We will be following Hugger, the Broadwing Hawk, all year, from the nesting period in May and June to his migration southward in the fall as well as his movements in Central or South America while he overwinters. Dr. Goodrich will be giving us regular reports on Hugger's progress, and we couldn't be more excited to be involved in this important project. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the broad-winged hawk. The broadwing is a member of the genus Buteo. Hawks in this genus have wide wingspans that allow them to soar. The broadwing is small and stocky with broad wings as their name implies. While there can be a wide range of deviation, in general, the adult broadwing's head is usually reddish-brown and the chest can have horizontal bars of white intermingled with cinnamon-colored feathers. Its tail is short and stubby compared to other hawks, and when flying overhead, you can spot their prominent white tail band or stripe, which is set against black feathers. Broadwings are similar in size to the American crow, measuring roughly 17 inches in length, with a wingspan at full extension of up to 40 inches, and they weigh in at just over a pound. 
These chunky and robust raptors typically leave their overwintering grounds in Central and South America to head back to the eastern United States and southern Canada in February, March, and April. Broadwings gravitate toward heavily forested areas. Very private birds, they stay well hidden from predators by remaining under the tree canopy. And when choosing a nesting site, they are extremely wary of human activity. Broadwings are carnivores and will eat just about anything, including rats, mice, chipmunks, voles, frogs, salamanders, and snakes, as well as songbirds. Also on the menu are grasshoppers, crickets, caterpillars, ants, beetles, flies, spiders, and earthworms. The broadwing doesn't waste any time when it comes to nest rearing. Mating can occur as soon as they arrive north, and eggs are laid as early as April. When it's mating time, the sturdy and compact broadwing can be seen displaying in circles high in the air, only to tuck into a stoop and take a dramatic and precipitous high-speed dive toward the ground. At the last minute, they pull up and return to their circling behavior. If that doesn't get the attention of a potential mate, I don't know what will. Nest construction is a big project and can take anywhere from two to four weeks to complete. The female constructs the nest, which can measure 21 inches across, and is usually located in the crotch of a tree. The male assists the female by bringing her sticks found on the forest floor. The female forms a soft area for the nestlings, built of sections of tree bark and greenery, like moss, leaves, and pine needles. The female lays a clutch of one to five eggs, which take roughly one month to hatch. The nestlings typically fledge by 45 days and spend a number of weeks following their parents around, learning how to hunt. Since broadwings are on the small size, they must fend off attacks by larger predators like red-tailed hawks and northern harriers. Their eggs are also prone to being grabbed by raccoons, porcupines, and black bears. Being small does have its advantages, however. Their solid, compact bodies allow them to fly at high speed in between trees in dense forested areas. This not only helps them elude capture, but makes them formidable hunters. You will always know when there is a broadwing in the area. This feisty hawk is a keen fighter and emits a distinctive high-pitched whistling call to sound a warning during a territorial dispute. They also use their call to lead newly-fledged youngsters back to the family nesting area when they stray too far out of range while learning to hunt. One of the earliest of the raptors to migrate in the fall, broadwings in their northern range are already on the move by early August. When broadwings head south for the winter, they can migrate to anywhere from southern Mexico to Brazil to Bolivia. They search for the edges of tropical forests as well as cloud forests. Hundreds of thousands of broadwings migrate south together. These enormous flocks are referred to as kettles and are a major attraction at hawkwatch sites across New England. Broadwings conserve energy during their trip by soaring on thermals. Research is showing that broadwings typically travel roughly 70 miles per day, logging in a total of over 4,000 miles to reach their southern destination. However, once they arrive, they tend to move within a one-square-mile area for the remainder of the winter. Broadwings are quite a sight to behold when migrating, and people travel from all over to watch them at hot spots like Hawk Mountain in Pennsylvania, Hawk Cliff in Ontario, and Hawk Ridge in Minnesota. 
Many juvenile broadwings may stop short of leaving the United States and can be found sunning themselves in southern Florida, particularly the Florida Keys. The oldest known broadwing hawk lived to be just over 18 years old. And now I'd like to introduce Dr. Lori Goodrich. Dr. Goodrich is the Sarcosocopian Director of Conservation Science at Hawk Mountain Sanctuary, which is located in Kempton, Pennsylvania. A full-time research biologist who has published more than 50 peer-reviewed papers on avian conservation, Goodrich is the founder of the Broadwing Hawk Research Project, which we will be speaking about today. She also co-founded the now world-famous Million Raptor Conservation Site at the River of Raptors in Veracruz, Mexico. Working with colleagues at the Hawk Migration Association of North America, Hawkwatch International, and Bird Studies Canada, Dr. Goodrich helped develop the award-winning Raptor Population Index. She also contributed heavily to the state of North America's Birds of Prey, the first comprehensive analysis of raptor populations across the North and South American continents. Dr. Goodrich, thank you so much for joining us today on Bird Hugger. We are very excited to have you on the show today. Please tell our listeners all about Hawk Mountain Sanctuary. Hawk Mountain Sanctuary was founded in 1934 as the first uh, sanctuary to be set aside for conservation of birds of prey in the world, actually. And it was started because there was all this shooting of raptors on migration on these Appalachian ridges. So in this particular spot, Hawk Mountain was very popular for hawk shooting. It was founded by a woman from New York City, Rosalie Edge, who came out and had found out about the shooting and decided that she was going to do something to protect the raptors. So she scrounged together the money to buy the property and, and founded a sanctuary. And then at that point, the board of directors of the nonprofit that she founded and the staff worked very hard to try to win legal protection for raptors, which did occur later on in the 60s and the 70s. So, so that was our roots. And today, actually, we are best known as a, a great place to go and watch migrating hawks. So in the fall season, we get lots of visitors, but we're open year round to hikers and bird watchers that want to come. We now own 2,500 acres and we have full-time programs in science and education. And of course, we have the visitor center. Hawk Mountain is a great success story in conservation and Rosalie Edge is now getting a lot more attention than she had early on in her career. She also was very uh, influential in protecting some of our national parks out west. But yeah, we now have full-time programs in, in conservation science, conservation education. And of course, we have this eight miles of hiking trails. We have these beautiful lookouts where you can go and kind of get away from it all. But also in the fall and a little bit in the spring, get a nice view of migrating raptors. So it's a really great place to go. And we're located in eastern Pennsylvania on the Appalachian Mountains. So we're actually within driving distance of quite a number of people from Washington, D.C., all the way up to New York and southern New England. So we do get about 75,000 people that visit year-round. We are a nonprofit, so we're supported by memberships and donations primarily, and that's allowed us to do a lot of work. One program I just want to mention, and people can get more information on our website about anything that I've said, is our Hawk Mountain Conservation Science Training Program. 
because we, we've been bringing young people from all over the world here since 1970s to learn about raptor conservation and to work alongside the staff for three months at a time. And then they, they learn kind of how, how we do conservation and how we work with the public and how we, how we do education and science. And then they can go back to their countries and hopefully start similar efforts there. So it's been very exciting to work with these, we call them trainees, conservation science trainees here to see what they do after they leave and to see what successes or little ripple effects that are occurring all over the world. And we do have North American candidates as well. So we'll take five or six people on during the fall and then another five or six in the spring. And if, if anyone listening is interested, there's application materials on our website. Could you give us the details about the Broadwing Satellite Tracking Program? Yes. To me, it's a very exciting research program that we're involved in. And we started this project in 2014. So we've been involved for about seven years the reason we started this research was that the broadwing hawk is a com- somewhat common hawk that nests in forests throughout the northeastern states and Canada. However, in the last decade or 15 to 20 years, actually, we've noticed there have been declines in their populations, particularly around urbanizing areas. We got some funding originally to try to investigate why this might be. So we were looking at their nesting ecology and we had a master's student, Rebecca McCabe, come on and did our master's on their behavior and food supply and so forth. But we've also been trying to look at their wintering behavior and wintering habitat and uh, what they do on migration. And of course, broadwing hawks are a long distance migrant. They're one of those birds that leaves North America in the winter and goes down to Central and South America for the winter. So we don't really have a lot of information about what's happening during a large part of the year when they're not in North America. So what we've been doing is getting, is raising money and putting these very intricate little satellite telemetry units on the birds on their back. They wear it like a little backpack. And then we can follow them to collect very important data on habitat use and migration pathways. And what's really cool is to learn where these birds that we might have nesting in our forest around us during the summer, where they're going for the winter. And so we we had marked from 2014 to 2019 about 12 to 15 broadwing hawks here in Pennsylvania. We wrote up those results and published that in a scientific paper in 2020. And now what we we really want to do is try to look at what's happening with birds that are nesting farther north in Canada and New England. So last year, we started putting units on birds from New Hampshire, Connecticut, and then we did get one bird from Ontario. So all of those birds, we watched on migration because what happens is the satellite will send information, location information on where the bird is to a company that owns the satellite, and then we get the data. Unfortunately, we have to pay for it, but we get the data, and we can download it on our computer. And on our website, we have these really cool maps that kind of show where these birds migrated last fall. We have two that are still signaling right now, wintering in Columbia, that were breeding or nesting birds in New Hampshire. Some of the other birds that we tagged, we're not hearing from right now, and that's partly because of the technology 
these are solar charged transmitters and sometimes they don't get enough charge to when the birds are inhabiting deep forests, we just don't get a signal. So so we're looking forward to getting those data later on when the birds start soaring around and migrating north. But yeah, I mean, some of the things that we have found from our research on Pennsylvania birds is that young, it looked like young birds wintered farther north than adults. That's one thing. We also discovered that that all of our broadwings undergo some kind of stopping behavior on migration. They're not migrating every day. They they stop and rest and feed periodically, which is important. So then we can look at what kinds of habitats they're using so that we can protect them better. Of course, we're very excited at BirdHugger to be involved in this year's research. Can you explain to our listeners what our role will be? Yes, we're very excited to have you join our group as well. As I said, we are a nonprofit. We don't have a lot of funding for these research projects. So we actually have started what we call an adopt a Broadwing program where people can, or groups like yourself, can sponsor a transmitter and one year of data. For that, we would then give you the honor of naming the Broadwing and then being able to follow it. Whether And you could have the maps on your website if you like, or you could just visit our website. So, and that could be a bird that's trapped here in Pennsylvania, or it could be for one from New Hampshire, or one from Canada. Those are all places that we're planning to do some trapping uh, next year. The timing of this would be we have to order our transmitters, I believe, in March, probably. Sometimes we can push that off a little bit to April, but because it takes, these are custom order designed units and they're very lightweight. They only weigh nine grams and that's purposeful because we, we don't want to put anything on a bird that will, that will impede it in any way. So it, these, these are designed to weigh less than 3% of the body weight. And so we have the company design these specifically for us. So it does take a couple months to get them designed and we are intending to be trapping up in New Hampshire in the end of June, early July, that time period, somewhere somewhere between the last week of June and the first week of July. It actually really, in order to do this, it's not that we can just go out in the woods okay, and say, oh, let's go trap a broadwing today. We you really have weeks of work ahead of time. We need to find the nests and have somebody check on them because we try to trap at the nest site to get the female. And we want to do that after the eggs have hatched. So the young are fully out of the eggs and it won't disturb them at all to have the female off the nest for half an hour or so. So we have somebody locating the nests for us because that's how we can figure out where the birds are. And then through their monitoring efforts, we will know when the, when the eggs hatch and then we can sort of time our visit accordingly to when the best time to trap will be. So there actually is a lot of prep work that goes into before we can actually head out in the field and trap these birds. Can you tell us how the transmitter is applied to the bird? Yeah, there, I think there's some photos on our website, but basically it's like a little backpack. And this this technology or, or design has been used before on other birds like eagles and vultures and bigger birds over the years. And it's so so all the little quirks have been worked out. But we use a Teflon ribbon, which is a very sort of slippery but strong ribbon, very narrow, that lies above, over the shoulders of the birds around the wings. And then the 
uh, it crosses on the breast of the bird and then the transmitter sits on the back. The unit is kind of like the size of a small matchbook, I guess, and it sits on the back of the bird and it's not very high. It actually can get lost in the feathers sometimes because the bird will preen around it and just kind of cover everything up. And so we have had birds here in Pennsylvania that we've monitored for six or seven years now that have had units on for a long period of time and don't seem to show any problem with it. So we don't feel like these are impacting them at all. And we're getting huge amounts of data and some of these birds that we've tracked year after year. It's really interesting to see how faithful they are to their migration routes and to the pattern where they're flying, but also sometimes to where they're stopping on migration. You know, just like you and I might have our favorite diner as we cross from X to Y point in our vacations, they seem to sometimes have the the uh, inclination to stop over when they're migrating from very similar close by to where they've stopped before. So that's kind of the kind of data that we're, we're gathering. And then uh, this year, we're hoping to do some data analysis on these stopover sites to look at the habitat. We know it's mostly forest. They're a forest nesting bird. So they're stopping in forest. They're wintering in forest. But we want to really kind of look at where these birds are going because a lot of these areas, particularly when you get south of the U.S., are getting heavily strained by deforestation and other conservation threats. So we really want to try to identify what needs to be protected to make sure this long-distance migrant has habitat going forward for decades to come. And this research could result in the protection of areas where broadwings stop to rest and feed. Yeah, that's one of the big hopes is that we'll be able to feed our scientific findings on this. The habitat will be shared with other agencies. It's already going to be used this coming year. The migration pathways are getting are going to be shown on National Audubon's having a, a new website come out on migratory birds, and they're using our data. Uh, Nature Conservancy has also used our data to try to highlight where in Central America needs needs further protection. So, so we will continue to share that information. And of course, trying to understand a little bit more about why some populations might be declining is still something that we're working on. It does appear that broadwing hawks are primarily an inland migrant, although certain numbers of them do show up along the coast down in Cape May, New Jersey. They count pretty good numbers of broadwings every year. If you look at where birds are migrating that have been tagged by us and other people, they're really trying to stick inland. Birds from New Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and New Hampshire all flew down the Appalachian mountain chain. Some of them flew down the west slope of the Appalachians. Some of them flew down the east slope or the Piedmont area, just, just uh, east of the mountain chain. But it's really dramatic that they, they're all following that pathway in one way or the other when you step back from it. It's, it's a clear path from New England down through Pennsylvania, down into Georgia. And then once they get that far, when the Appalachians kind of end, then they head, then they head to the Gulf Coast, but not right on the coast, just sort of skirting the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico into Mexico. And they really start clumping up and converging with other broadwings from all over the, the continent 
in Mexico. So you get these huge flights, thousands and thousands of birds flying together when they get down to Mexico. So they're pretty strongly clumped along the Gulf Coast of Mexico, then into Central America from there. And of course, that's a very narrow pathway as well. And there's a lot of irregular mountain ranges they have to contend with. But then once they get into Colombia, there seems to be, again, a breaking up of the streams and different birds are going different places. So we're still trying to understand that a bit more. Now, could you talk a moment about the biology and behavior of the broadwing? Yeah, the broadwing hawk is a beautio, but they do inhabit forest habitat, though it's a little unusual. They're about the size of a crow, so they're a small beautio hawk. And beautios are the group of hawks that includes the red-tailed hawk, the red-shouldered hawk. So typically, beautios are soaring birds. And, of course, in migration, that's what broadwings do. They're expert soaring birds. But during the summer, when they're down in the forest, they probably behave a lot like an occipiter, kind of moving below the canopy of the forest and looking for food. They do nest in trees and in large trees, usually. Uh, they sometimes like to be near a small opening, like a trail or a woodland road or a backyard, but not right on the edge. They'll be away from the edge. They eat a wide variety of prey, and that's kind of a good thing, so they're not too specialized, but they do seem to eat a lot of frogs and snakes and small mammals. When we when we did our studies here, the eastern chipmunk was a favored prey item for the broadwing hawk. And they do eat songbirds as well, but not as much as small mammals. But I was surprised at how many snakes they they were finding. You know, when I go out in the woods, I very rarely see a snake and 15, 10 to 15% of their diet was uh, snakes. So that was kind of interesting. They raise about one to four young. Generally, it's around two each year. They tend to be fairly um, precise or, or in their timing. They'll be arriving back from their winter homes at the end of April, and then they'll start building their nest and start incubating by the second week of May. And in June, second half of June, they'll, their young will hatch by end of July or mid-July, the young leave the nest. And then the young will stay around and get cared for by the parents for a couple of weeks. It takes them a little while to kind of learn how to be a broadwing before they all disperse. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how each of us can help the broadwing hawk in our own backyards? Yeah, I, I know the, the densities or abundance of broadwings in New Hampshire, up where you are, are going to be are probably higher than they are here. And that so you're more likely to have a broadwing in your backyard or nearby. And that's that's because you have so much forest up there. So protecting the forest and keeping it, keeping some mature trees is good because they do like the larger trees to put their nests in. And they do like, as I said, small openings. So trails and uh, walking roads are not a problem at all. They uh, they do have a problem with getting hit by cars like any other wildlife. So that's an issue. But yeah, just having a healthy forest habitat is helping them and as well as every other forest bird as, that you guys have up there. So I think things are pretty on wetlands. They do love hunting around long wetlands and you have a lot of boggy, marshy areas. So that's good too. They need a nice crotch near the upper half of the tree. So 
like some pine trees are not that easy for birds to nest, raptors to nest in because they don't have a good, strong crotch. And when I say crotch, I mean like where two or three, generally at least three branches or trunks go off in different directions. Then you get this nice little place they can put their stick nest. They do use evergreens. Um, if there's a nice big evergreen tree that's got a lot of structure to it, oaks are great. Other deciduous trees that have kind of a branching structure near the top, they will use those. But yeah, so keeping the forest as natural as possible, you know, they need that canopy. The, there needs to be branches above the nest to protect the young, both from sun, but also from predators because, you know, broad rings are fairly small. So they, they do get taken by other larger predators like a great horned owl or a red tailed hawk. So they need some kind of cover to, to give them a chance. They're usually under the canopy. So they're below the top of, you know, when you're looking up in the, in the forest, it would be below the tops of the trees, but in the upper part of that, of this tree is where the nest is. Cause that's usually where you get those big branching structure. So they need those branches that have leaves or needles that, that create a cover over top to hide to hide them from anything that's flying above the forest. But yeah, they need that strong structure to hold, to hold the nest. It's, it's a stick nest that's, that they form with, it can be large sticks and then little sticks mixed together, but mostly sticks in the nest. And then the, the interesting thing is that they will line it sometimes with fresh green leaves or hemlock boughs. And then of course they keep replenishing that over the course of the nesting season. So they keep in bringing in fresh green leaves and it creates a nice little bed for the eggs to lay on and the chicks to sit on. And it's thought that one of the reasons they do that is to help keep flies and other biting pests away from the young because these green leaves have anti-insect compounds in them. So they, they kind of, as they're laying there, are helping keep the insects off the young. But that's really a hypothesis that hasn't been proven. But um, we were just amazed at some of the nests we've seen if, when we climbed up to them years ago. We don't do that anymore, but they would just be covered with this nice little layer of green leaves. So so obviously it's they're doing it for some reason. They rebuild nests every year, which makes it hard for us scientists because we have to find the nest again. So they don't use the same nest. Some of the larger hawks will do that. Of course, eagles use the same nest, osprey, and red-tailed hawks will use the same nest year after year. But broadwings don't. And I think one of, you know, we don't really know why, but I'm guessing it might have something to do with the predators and trying to keep one step ahead of anything that might go after the adults or the young because they are kind of a small. They're, you know, as I said, they're crow size because they're, they can be picked on by a lot of stuff. And raccoons will actually, will actually take the eggs as well if they can find the nest. So how did you become interested in raptors? I guess, you know, I've been here at Hawk Mountain for more than 30 years. And so I came here right out of grad school and became interested in raptors before that. And I, I, don't, I can't really pinpoint exactly when, but I did do some research in Cape May, New Jersey, uh, during the migration on raptors and looking at disturbance 
questions whether people were disturbing migrating raptors or predators were. So I did a little research down there on, on migrating raptors. But, you know, I think I've been touched. I've touched, my life has touched raptors right from the beginning in different places. When I was in second grade, my second grade teacher read us a book called Rufus Redtail. And uh, it was my favorite book in the whole world for many years. Just, and it was all about the life of a red tail hawk and from egg to when he had his own eggs. So that was one touch. And then when I took ornithology, when college, a friend of mine and I found a red tail hawk nest and were able to monitor it. So that was exciting. So I think I've just always had them in my blood from the beginning. I'd like to thank Dr. Lori Goodrich for joining us today. Dr. Goodrich will be back on the show to give us regular updates on this research project as the year progresses. For more information on Hawk Mountain and the wonderful work they are doing to protect raptors, go to hawkmountain.org. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.